This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 43. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, we're going to talk all about dividend investing for Canadians, including shedding some light on using dividend investing as part of your investing strategy. Now, we'll take a look at what to look for and, of course, the different types of dividend investing available to Canadians. Now, if you're a longtime listener of the show, then you know that there are quite a few investing strategies out there and dividend investing is definitely one of the really popular ones, especially among those that like the idea of their investment spinning off passive cash flow on an ongoing basis, as opposed to you having to sell off some of your ETFs or stocks to generate the cash flow that you want. And so today's guest is Nick McCollum from Sure Dividend, and they specialize in dividend investing, whether it's through ETFs or individual stocks. So I thought it would be great to have him on the show so we can learn and to help us make an informed decision on whether having a dividend focus within our portfolio is something that may be a good fit for you. Now, Nick and his team do a ton of research on dividend investing and specific dividend investing stocks and ETFs. So if this is something of interest to you and something that you'd like to learn more about, then you can check out the resources page that Nick actually created specifically for Build Wealth Canada listeners, where you can actually do a free trial to see the research and advice and really see if this type of investing is the right fit for you. So to learn more and get a free trial to any of their newsletters, you can go to the custom page that they created for us over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash dividends. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash dividends. And now before we dive into this episode, I'd like to take a moment to introduce our sponsor, which is canspace.ca, Canada's favorite web hosting provider. Now, if you're a local business, a startup, or an entrepreneur, and you're looking to get your brand in front of the right people, you basically need to invest in a .ca domain. For example, I target fellow Canadian wealth builders, investors, so it wouldn't make sense for me to have a .com domain. Instead, I use a .ca domain, and it gives my website a better chance of showing up in Canadian search results. And not to mention, Canadian shoppers are more likely to purchase from brands that they know are Canadian, like when they notice a business that has a .ca domain. Also, you're way more likely to get better web hosting from a local Canadian provider than from international alternatives where the servers aren't even in your country. So, you know, think 99.9% uptime, faster speeds that can help you rank higher on Google, really outstanding support, and a free website builder with tons of useful apps. So, if you need to change providers or are looking to launch your latest idea, Can Space Can Help. And as of this episode, all Build Wealth Canada listeners will get $10 off the plan of their choice. And also, even if you're just considering starting your own blog or business one day, then I suggest you still go and grab the coupon now as it's basically a free $10 off and the discount might not be available forever. And you can always use the coupon later when you're ready to get started, all right? So just visit buildwealthcanada.ca slash hosting and enter your email address and you'll get the coupon for free. All right, and now let's get into the show. All right, hi, Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, Cornell. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. No problem. So, Nick, your company and your site focuses heavily on finding high-quality dividend stocks and ETFs. What made you decide to focus specifically on strong dividend-paying companies for your investment strategy? I would say that it all comes back to performance. So, what really is amazing about dividend stocks is if you focus on the subset of dividend stocks that 
have the propensity to increase their dividends year in and year out. So the, the great universe of stocks to see that phenomenon is the dividend aristocrats, which are S&P 500 dividend payers that have hiked their dividend for 25 years in a row or longer. So if you look at the performance of the dividend aristocrats, they've performed by about two and a half or three percentage points a year for the last decade. I think 2.9% was the last data I saw. So if you compound that out over long periods of time, the performance of the dividend aristocrats and dividend stocks in general, there's all kinds of data on just regular dividend stocks. Uh, it's really compelling. And that's why we decided to focus our strategy on dividend stocks. Gotcha. And yeah, one of the articles that I really enjoyed from you was when you compared the performance of the US index, so the S&P 500 versus the dividend aristocrats in the US. Can you explain, um, well, you kind of already explained what dividend aristocrats are. Uh, can you maybe explain though what the difference is between Canada and the US? Because I know the dividend aristocrats are um, de defined differently uh, within each of those countries. And you know, what are your findings when you compare the two? So when you compare the Canadian aristocrats to the Canadian index, so the S&P TSX, and then when you compare the U U.S. Um, aristocrats to the S&P 500, so the kind of the U.S. Uh, index. Yeah, so the main difference between the U.S. dividend aristocrats and the Canadian dividend aristocrats is the dividend history requirements. So in the States, like I said earlier, the requirement to be a dividend aristocrat is 25 plus years of consecutive dividend increases. And in Canada, that criterion is actually reduced. It's only 10 years. I think the reason why is because if you were to search for 25 plus year dividend stocks in Canada, you would be looking at very, very few stocks, probably five or so. So in order to widen that universe, they increased or sorry, they decreased the requirement to 10 plus years. And I think fundamentally that is largely due to the cyclicality of the energy industry, which the Canadian stock market is heavily overweight in. Uh, so there's that, that's the main characterization difference. And from a performance difference, I actually haven't seen data on the Canadian dividend aristocrats, but I wouldn't be surprised to see that they would also have some outperformance over the Canadian stock market indices as well. Gotcha. And so when... Well, yeah, it was a really interesting chart that I saw on one of the articles that you you read, where you it was just basically a line graph showing the growth of the S and P five hundred and then the growth of uh, the dividend aristocrats in the U S. Um, and it and I noticed that you know at the kind of the two thousand eight you know around kind of the financial crisis time, that's where the dividend aristocrats really started to outperform the S and P five hundred. Why do you think that is? I would say that at the security level. It has to do with these rising dividend payments you're receiving. So if you think about the average investor who invests in dividend stocks, a lot of them are retired and need that income in order to support their living expenses, right? So having that rising income during a period of mar like a bear market means that there's not going to be as much selling. So prices will stay well supported and prices won't drop as much. At the business level, I would say that uh, these dividend aristocrats have really strong competitive advantages. If you think about how hard it is to even just run a business profitably and then think about how hard it is to grow that business for 25 years in a row. And then beyond that, you have to make the decision to also distribute rising profits to your shareholders every year. It takes a lot to be a dividend aristocrat. And a lot of the companies in the dividend aristocrats index have really strong brands. So Coca-Cola is a great example of that. Or they are the leader in their sector of the stock market, like Johnson & Johnson. They're probably the biggest health, publicly traded healthcare corporation in the world. Uh, it takes a lot to be a dividend aristocrat. So those competitive advantages allow them to outperform, especially during bear markets. 
Gotcha. And then you said that um, you haven't really compared the Canadian aristocrats uh, too much to the Canadian index ones because you guys focus uh, primarily on uh, the U.S. market and, and the S&P 500 there versus uh, the dividend-paying stocks um, within the U.S. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay, gotcha. So now, because of these high returns combined with the low interest rate environment that we've had for the past while, I can see how these types of stocks are really appealing to investors. But of course, you know, with the flood of investors rushing in to buy these types of stocks, you know, especially when you think of, you know, people are more and more people are, are retiring, they're looking, for, they, they like having those steady stream of dividend payments coming in. You know, one begins to worry that the increased demand for these types of stocks drives the price of these stocks up and then potentially making some of these stocks expensive and arguably overvalued. So for somebody interested in having more dividend exposure in their portfolio, how do you protect yourself from buying an overvalued stock? Yeah, so you're definitely right in saying that the the broad stock market is definitely overvalued right now if you take a statistical approach to it. And you can try to factor in the fact that interest rates are low, but from any quantitative and objective benchmark, stocks are overpriced right now. And if you project the future returns out for the next year using historical data, you'd get like 2% or 3% returns, which is really kind of terrible. So what that means is that individual investors and institutional investors as well, actually, just have to be very, very selective when it comes to what stocks they're buying. So it's a stock market, which means it's a market of stocks. So you can choose and pick what you buy. And if that means that you're going to pass on a lot of opportunities because they're overpriced, well, that's not really a bad problem to have. So I would say that uh, the, the benefits of owning high-quality dividend stocks doesn't mean you should pay insane valuations for them. What it does mean is that you should continue to choose high-quality, but you just need to be selective when it comes to valuation. Okay, gotcha. So your preference then, I, I it sounds like, is – you know, as much as you like the dividend aristocrats and the performance compared to the U.S. index, your your preference is still to not just buy you know the whole the whole ETF of all the aristocrats. Instead, pick and choose individual stocks by actually looking at them on a kind of case by case basis, and then making the right decision there. And then by doing it that way, you're able to determine whether they are overvalued or undervalued, whether it's a good buying opportunity, and then executing in that kind of a way. Is that would that be correct? Yeah, definitely. I would say that owning a diversified ETF of dividend aristocrats or some other proxy for quality is a great strategy as long as the market's not overvalued. But if you do that right now, you're forcing yourself to buy a bunch of overvalued stocks, which is not a winning strategy. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay, great. So we have a lot of Canadian listeners on the show. And if they focus heavily on Canadian dividend stocks, then they're going to have too much of the portfolio in certain sectors, which can really hurt them from a diversification perspective. So how do you recommend offsetting this problem? Yeah, so for um, I guess I'll preface this with by just saying you know I'm Canadian too. I was born and raised uh, in New Brunswick, so give a shout out to the small giant on the East Coast. Um, <laughs> so I would say that you're completely right in saying that you can't get proper sector diversification by owning just Canadian stocks. You'll get great energy exposure, you'll get great financials exposure, and then beyond that, you're kind of choosing between very few opportunities and probably not the best opportunities when compared if you were going to take a global focus. So uh, I would say that the best way, as you probably know, to invest in U.S. stocks is to do it through a uh, through an RRSP. Because what that means is you don't, get, you don't pay taxes on the capital gains. Uh, you don't even pay any tax on the dividend. So normally there's a withholding tax when U.S. companies pay a dividend to Canadian investors, but that withholding tax is actually waived if you own it in an RRSP. So that is definitely the best way to own U.S. stocks. And that's going to allow you to get, get exposure to sectors where the U.S. is particularly strong. So sectors like 
healthcare and technology and consumer goods, all of the best companies in those sectors are headquartered and domiciled in the United States. So if you exclude the states from that from your investment universe, uh, you're going to hurt your investment performance by having a smaller uh, selection of companies to choose from. Gotcha. So your, I guess, uh, your thesis or argument would be that, okay, sure, you can definitely have some good Canadian dividend-paying stocks, some good strong companies in there, but you do definitely want to diversify outside of Canada as well, just especially because of that whole sector, uh, the lack of sector diversification that's just inherent with Canadian, uh, within Canada. And so you make sure you factor in, you include some U.S. companies Hold them in your RRSP so that you don't get charged uh, because of the, you know the tax treaty and just the tax efficiency of doing that, um, and then that's kind of how you can overcome this um, kind of this this problem of being not diversified enough by investing just in Canadian dividend payers in Canada. Yes, that's right, and I would say that you know all of the fundamental benefits of owning dividend stocks they hold whether you're investing in the United States or in Canada. So there's a lot of just underlying common sense reasons of why dividend stocks, not even dividend growth stocks, just dividend stocks, why they tend to outperform. And those hold true whether you're investing in Canada or the United States or even in international geographies. Right. I mean, if, if it's a good company, it's a good company, right? It, it, uh, I mean, I'm sure, you know, obviously, it makes a difference from country to country because of, you know, different policies and laws they have, etc. But if it's if it's a good company, it's a good company. And, and you're saying that, you know, that should trump kind of just what country the um, what com- what country that company is in, basically, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. So does U.S. have the same type of problem as Canada in the sense that if you just go and buy, you know, let's say the you know, U.S. aristocrat ETF, that if you do that, you're also not very well diversified in terms of sectors? Yeah. So, I mean, historically, the dividend aristocrats index has been very overweight in a few sectors that just have less volatility and more a higher quality of earnings and are just kind of chock full of these legendary dividend growth stocks. So the two that I would naturally say are consumer staples and healthcare. So right now, consumer staples is almost one quarter of the dividend aristocrats index, and uh, healthcare is another 12%. Industrials also has a high weighting, so it's 21% right now, higher than healthcare. Uh, and there are a few industries that have a surprisingly low concentration in the dividend aristocrats index. So information technology is only 2%, utilities are only 2%, uh, real estate's only 2%, telecommunications are only 2%. So it's really overweight in a few sectors and highly underweight in in other sectors. Gotcha. Okay. So that so I it sounds like then your argument is ideally in that to not have that problem of just being very concentrated in just a few sectors. Instead, your suggestion is to find really good companies within the different sectors and basically pick and choose the stocks as opposed to just buying all of them through an index or just by buying all the aristocrat ETFs, for example. Well, I would say that uh, at Sure Dividend, we're not really too focused on sector diversification because, I mean, there's a few cases where this is not true, like energy. Energy stocks are dependent on oil prices. But for most sectors, if something hurts that sector, it's going to hurt pretty much all the sectors. And if something helps that sector, it's going to help all the sectors as well. So we're pretty, I guess, agnostic when it comes to sector diversification. It's not something we focus on in our newsletters. Uh, Energy is a, a notable exception to that, I will say. But we tend to just take a broad universe of stocks from all sectors and then quantitatively rank them to see which ones are most appealing right now. Okay, understood. So do you have any sort of guidelines that you use like, okay, we don't want more than 20% of our portfolio in this sector or we don't want more than 5% of our portfolio in this one company? Do you have any sort of guidelines like that that you use just from a diversification perspective? 
no, not in our quantitative systems that we run in our newsletter. No, there's no strict diversification guidelines when it comes to sectors. There are diversification guidelines when it comes to individual stocks, but not when it comes to sector concentration. Okay, gotcha. Understood. Um, but yeah, if you were to just while we're on the subject, if you are looking at just individual companies, is there a certain cutoff that you like to use? Um, for example, you know, one that I like is you know not more than five percent of your portfolio in any one company. Is, do you have anything like that as well that you think is a good rule of thumb for people? Yeah. So the sure dividend strategy uh, advocates kind of. So we publish these newsletters, like I mentioned before, and you're supposed to buy the highest ranked stock in these newsletters that you don't already own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then hold it until it either cuts its dividend or becomes irrationally overpriced. And you do that with a new stock each month until you've accumulated 20 holdings. And then you have the choice of either adding to positions you already own or you can sell one of the 20 positions to purchase a new one that's more compelling. Okay. So does that make sense? It does, yeah. yeah. So it's, just, it's, a, it's not as simple as just a straight kind of percentage. You have a... Uh, sort of sort of a different strategy that you use when it comes to that. That makes sense. Okay, no, that's good. Um, yeah, so for somebody that wants that extra dividend exposure as part of their portfolio, you know, it, it seems like they have, we kind of touched on this already. It seems like they have three main options. They can either buy a dividend aristocrat ETF. They can buy the stocks that are within the aristocrat ETF directly, and that way they're bypassing the ETF fees. Or they can pick and choose individual stocks that are strong uh, dividend payers. Um, so I know it, just from our conversation already, I know you have a preference toward the third option. You know, but what are the pros and cons of these different approaches? Um, and then which option do you recommend for the different types of investors out there? Do you always recommend the third option of just picking individual stocks, no matter who the investor is? Or uh, what, what's your thought process there? I guess probably the easiest way to approach my answer to this is go through the options one by one and tell you what I think of them. Uh, so the first option is buying just the dividend aristocrats ETF, which trades on the ticker NOBL or Noble. We call it the Noble ETF. And the problem with this, I guess there's two problems. The first is that, like I said earlier, it's going to force you to buy overvalued stocks when the market is overvalued. Uh, conversely, though, if the market is really undervalued and we're in a bear market, that'd be a great time to buy the dividend aristocrats ETF because you're going to be able to capture the undervaluation of all these stocks with a single purchase. Uh, so that's kind of the downside to it, in my opinion, is that sometimes it forces you to buy overvalued stocks. Now, the upside is that it is completely passive. You could set up like a, an automatic purchase plan of this ETF every month. And if you did that every year for 10 or 20 years, you would end up fine. You, you would compound your wealth a adequate rate and you would not ever have to think about it. So if investing in finance is not your thing, which I kind of doubt any of you listening to this, that's true because you're listening to a, an investing podcast. But <laughs> for people who, uh, who don't get joy out of reading and learning about investing in stocks that's probably the best approach just because uh, it's going to be a lot easier to stick to it because it's so passive so that's my thoughts on option one option two was to buy the constituents of the etf uh, but outside of the etf so buy them directly and the problem with that i mean it's gonna you're gonna be buying overvalued stocks again if you buy them in the same proportion that they're in the etf but if you have a small portfolio the trading fees that you're going to incur by buying all 53 stocks in that index are going to be far higher probably than uh, the management costs you will incur by owning the ETF. So it might, unless you have a huge portfolio, like multi-million dollar portfolio, you'll definitely save money. But if you have a smaller portfolio, those 53 trades will really add up in price. So I would say out of those two options, the first option is preferable if your portfolio is small. And then the third option, unsurprisingly, is the one I would choose. And there's a number of benefits to it, some of which I've already touched on. But one that I haven't really touched on yet is that it gives you the ability to really customize 
the portfolio to do exactly what you want to do. So if you're a dividend investor and you need a little bit more yield because you're retired and you need to pay for your living expenses, you can selectively overweight the stocks in the dividend aristocrats that have higher yields. So ExxonMobil is an example right now. I think they're yielding like 4.1% right now. So if you follow the 4% withdrawal rule for retirement, there's your 4% just from dividends. Uh, so the customization is really attractive. It also allows you to select stocks that are only undervalued or at least fairly valued. You can avoid overvalued stocks with no growth. Uh, and there are certainly some of those in the dividend aristocrats right now. So the customization and the ability to buy undervalued stocks to generate higher returns are the two things that stand out about option three. That's great. That's a, that's a great answer. Uh, yeah. So having a heavily dividend focused strategy, it seems to not be as common as just buying the entire index. So for example, if anybody does a search about the different investing strategies, uh, they'll find, for example, Warren Buffett suggesting something like buying the S&P 500 ETF as opposed to an aristocrat ETF. And then there's other blogs and publications that seem to focus a lot more on just kind of broad market index investing uh, as opposed to being focused so much on um, good dividend paying company specifically. And then I think the robo-advisors are another good example. I took a look at some of the, you can actually see what ETFs they buy as part of their model portfolios for their clients. And they also generally buy broad market index ETFs instead of being heavily focused on dividends. So, you know, why do you think that is? Because I mean, we talked about S&P 500 and how it has underperformed relative to the aristocrat ETF. And you're saying you can actually do even better than that, because if you're picking and choosing individual, the right stocks, uh, you can actually, you know, you're not buying these over overvalued ones. And so you can do even better than that, you know. So, so if the data is um, clearly kind of you know in favor of these you know dividend-paying stocks, you know, why do you think that there's such a preference towards just broad market index investing? Is it just because it's a lot easier to do? You don't have to you know, research and, and look into individual stocks, or why do you think that is? Well, I guess I'll start my answer to this by just saying the data supports dividend stocks, but there's also like I'm always wary of people who present data, but there's no common sense underlying reason why the data would be true. So you could probably find data that says stocks that start with the letter C outperform. To me, that is not anything you could base an investment strategy on, right? Because there's no common sense reason why that would be true. But for dividend stocks, there's a lot of common sense reasons why they outperform. So, you know, dividend paying stocks have to have actual cash to pay the dividend. So it's going to exclude pre-earning startups and bankrupt companies. So the two riskiest companies or groups of companies are going to be excluded from dividend stocks. Dividends also show that a company is shareholder friendly and it also takes some cash out of the management team's hands because uh, when corporate managers get too much cash, they tend to invest it in growth opportunities that aren't very compelling. So there's lots of common sense reasons to back up the data, which I just, I feel like it's important for investors to understand that. Uh, moving on to, I guess, the actual meat of your question. I think it's also important to understand the difference between what people tell you to do and what they actually do themselves. So Warren Buffett telling people to buy the S&P 500, I find to be very interesting because he obviously has never bought the S&P 500 index and probably never will. So I think there's something there. I think the S&P 500 advice from Warren Buffett is applicable for people, like I said earlier, who have no interest or joy from investing. So for those people, the S&P 500 index or the dividend aristocrats index probably works. But if you want to get the most bang for your buck, generate the highest returns with the appropriate amount of risk, Warren Buffett is not buying the S&P 500 index. And he's the best investor probably of all time. You could argue a few other people, but Warren Buffett would be my pick. So if the best investor of all time tells you to do one thing, but it's not the same thing he does, I think you should probably take note of that. And uh, yeah, so 
I would say that the benefits to owning ETFs are mostly for people who want to have a completely hands-off investing strategy. But for people who are more focused about returns and monitoring their investments and uh, constructing an investment portfolio that meets their goals exactly, individual stocks is probably the way to go. Gotcha. No, that's great. And with, um, I mean, I'm just thinking back to the, the chart I saw in your article where you, you know, that line chart where you had the S&P 500 versus the aristocrat ETF and, and how the aristocrat ETF performed. So when you see something like that, that makes a pretty strong case for the aristocrat ETF. Um, so even if somebody doesn't want to manage their stocks directly, they like the passive approach, right? Um, I think with Warren Buffett too, right? I mean, what, what he's, I think what he was going for there is that for people that aren't, like you said, very um, kind of investors that you know like to do it themselves, like to manage what their portfolio carefully, you know, basically are okay not being passive about it, like like to be an, you know an active investor. Uh, so I think for, for you know for the passive people, you know, why wouldn't he say something like, "Oh, do the aristocrat ETF because it's just as passive as investing in an S and P five hundred." I mean, it, it takes just as much effort, right, uh, to do that, but it actually has performed higher. Did, why do you think you know he wouldn't have mentioned something like that? That's a great question. I will say that for past investors, having diversification and exposure to all of the businesses in the American stock market or Canadian stock market for our Canadian readers or listeners, sorry, is probably uh, more important and even more passive than the dividend aristocrats ETF. So an S&P 500 index fund is going to have approximately 500 holdings. The, S- the dividend aristocrats ETF has 53 holdings right now. So only 10% as many holdings as the S&P 500. If anything really bad happens to one of those holdings, it's going to have a far higher impact than if something bad happens to one of the holdings of the S&P 500 index fund. So there's more diversification. It's also going to give you more uh, market capture. So the because most American equities are benchmarked to the S&P 500, the beta of the S&P 500 ETF should be basically 1.0000. And if it's not, that's just due, due to some slight tracking error from the ETF provider. Right. So if you want to just capture the movement of American equities, uh, the S&P 500 ETF is definitely the way to go. And I think that's probably why Warren Buffett recommends it for passive investors. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right. No, that sounds good. So tell us a bit more about uh, the newsletter. You offer some uh, dividend training as well. Uh, and then you do also have a, a free trial for both Canada listeners that uh, want to learn more about dividend investing and how to do it properly. Yeah, sure. So Sure Dividend is an investment newsletter provider that seeks to help individual investors uh, achieve their investment outcomes by focusing on low-cost positions in individual securities. So our investment philosophy is kind of based on the belief that anytime we let our emotions get in the way of our investment decision-making, it's usually a detractor from returns, not an added value to returns. So we've developed a systematic strategy called the eight rules of dividend investing that has five buy rules, two sell rules, and one portfolio management rule. And these eight rules used in conjunction with one another allow you to, over time, construct a high-quality portfolio of dividend growth stocks that will allow you to generate rising portfolio income over long periods of time uh, and hopefully achieve higher total returns with less risk than the broader equity indices. So I can get, if you'd like, I can give you a, a walkthrough of the eight rules. It's sure. probably a great, sure, it's probably, good. Yeah, it's probably a great way for you guys to understand what we do. So... Uh, the eight rules of dividend investing, like I said, it has five buy rules, two sell rules, and one portfolio management rule. So the first buy rule is the quality rule. And this is based on the belief that we want to invest in companies that have uh, long-term records of stability, growth, and profitability. So the quantitative signal that we use to to look for stocks with these characteristics is that we rank stocks by their dividend history and their corporate history. So the longer, the better. 
in practice, if a stock, you know, stock A has increased its dividend for five years and it's been, uh, it's been around for 20 years and stock B has increased its dividend for 25 years and it's been around for 100 years, stock B would rank far higher because of its longer dividend history and its longer corporate history. So that's the first rule. The second rule is the bargain rule. And this says, uh, you know, invest in businesses that pay you the most dividends per dollar that you invest. And unsurprisingly, the ranking factor here is dividend yield. So we want to invest in companies with higher dividend yields versus companies with lower dividend yields. The third rule is the safety rule. And this rule was designed to capture dividend safety in the stocks that we screen. Now, the trouble with that is that most stock screeners have pretty poor data for payout ratios because they'll use gap earnings that are impacted by one-time accounting charges or uh, they'll use earnings instead of free cash flow, which is probably a better metric. So to capture dividend safety, what we chose to do instead was to rank stocks by their share repurchase yield. And the logic here is that if a company's buying back lots of stock, it's probably going to stop buying back stock before its dividend will become at risk. So if you think about a company with 100% shareholder yield divided 50-50 between dividends and share repurchases, it's going to cut the 50% share repurchase yield before it's going to cut the 50% dividend uh, yield, not dividend yield, but dividend payout and share repurchase payout. So uh, to capture safety in the stocks we screen through, we rank them by share repurchase yield. The fourth rule is the growth rule. And, uh, you know, just like any other investor, we like to invest in businesses that have a solid history of growth and a high likelihood of growing well into the future. So we rank stocks by their long term earnings per share growth estimates. And sometimes if earnings per share growth estimates aren't available, like for real estate investment trusts, then we can use revenue per share growth or dividend per share growth instead. So, So that's the fourth rule. And the fifth rule is the peace of mind rule. And this rule says, you know, we want to buy businesses that people invest in during recessions and times of panic. We want stability and we want uh, conservative investments that still deliver adequate returns. So in order to capture this effect, we rank stocks by their long-term volatility and beta. The lower, the better. So that's the five buy rules. The two sell rules are pretty straightforward. We will sell a stock when either one, it cuts its dividend or two, it becomes irrationally overpriced. So a price to earnings ratio of around 40. And the logic for the second sell rule is that if the stock's trading at a price-to-earnings ratio of 40, it's going to have a low dividend yield regardless of how much earnings it pays out. So we're going to sell that PE 40 stock and buy one with a much lower valuation to incre- instantly increase the um, to instantly increase the yield we get from our portfolio. So that's the two sell rules. And then the last rule is the hedge your bets rule, which is our portfolio management rule. And the idea here is just that no one's right all the time. So uh, the rule says to use the other eight rules of dividend investing to rank high quality dividend growth stocks and buy them until you own 20. So that in a nutshell is the eight rules of dividend investing. And we use those eight rules to rank a universe of around 900 stocks in the share dividend newsletter and the share retirement newsletter. And then we write detailed analysis on the top 10 according to each ranking scheme and publish them in a research publication each month. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. I think that's a good. I'm glad you went through that. I think it's 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 also a good test. I think if somebody is interested in in, in investing in individual stocks and doing that, you know, the research and due diligence there, uh, you know, then what you just said, I think, probably sounds very appealing to them and, and are very good actionable items for them. And if someone thinks, okay, well, you know what, this is uh, kind of more than kind of more involved than what I want to get into uh, with my investing, then then maybe you know they're more of a, a, a kind of a passive type investor, like a you know couch potato investor, uh, you know ETF investor, that kind of a thing. So I think uh, I think that's great. I'm glad. I'm really glad you shared those. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's some really good food for thought. 
out as well. Uh, no, so that's great. So thanks for uh, for coming on the show. Uh, I'll, I'll be sure to give all you know leave all the resources on the show notes as well. Uh, links to the free trial as well. Uh, so for anybody that wants to learn more about this, or at least um, if, you know if someone's on the fence, I'm not sure if they want to you know, if this is for them or not, then at least, I like the free trial thing, right? Because then they can at least look into it, read a little bit more from you guys and figure out whether this is a, you know, an approach that they like, whether this is a good fit for them. So, uh, so thanks for offering that to all the Build Wolf Canada listeners. Um, and, and that's it. Thanks for, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, Cornell. I hope everyone uh, enjoyed the conversation. I know I certainly did. Okay, wonderful. All right. Have a good one, Nick. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to learn more about dividend investing and see if it's the right fit, then don't forget to check out the custom page that Nick created just for us where you can get a free trial to him and his team's research and learn a ton more over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash dividends. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash dividends. And of course, just a quick reminder before we wrap up the show that if you're a business owner and you want local Canadian prospects to find your brand online, don't forget to check out CanSpace. As we talked about earlier, using a .ca domain and hosting will increase your chances of showing up in Canadian search results. Not to mention, statistically, Canadian shoppers will be more likely to purchase from you if they know that you are also located in Canada. And with a .ca domain, this is one of the easiest ways to prove to them that you're a business that is genuinely Canadian. Plus, you'll have a much better experience with a local Canadian web host and an international alternative. So think 99.9% uptime, outstanding support, and a free website builder with tons of useful apps. And the best part is all Build Wealth Canada listeners will get $10 off the plan of their choice. So whether you already have a business or are just thinking of one day starting a blog or business on the side, visit Build Wealth Canada ca slash hosting and enter your email address to secure your free coupon while it's still available. You can use it now or whenever you're ready to get that business started. So secure that coupon for free now by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash hosting. All right, have a great week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 